The following program is provided by Renew Your Mind Ministries. Welcome to Renewing Your Mind with the Word of God radio program, an in-depth study of the Word of God. The program name is from Romans 12.2, which says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Welcome to Renewing Your Mind with the Word of God that you can hear on each Tuesday from 9.30 a.m. to on WMPR 90.1. And if you missed the program, you can always catch it on the web at www.rymm.cc. Again, that's www.rymm.cc. I'm excited about today's show. We're going to get into the Word of God, starting chapter 2 of the Gospel of John in the New Testament. I'm always excited to get into and study the Word of God. In this particular episode or program, we're going to cover the first of seven miracles that Jesus would perform to show that he is the true Messiah and the Son of God. So we're going to start off in chapter 2. Before we get in chapter 2, we're going to recap what we finished off on last week at the end of chapter 1 where we talked about John the Baptist revealed that he didn't know Jesus was the Messiah until such time as God revealed that to him during the course of John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. We also talked about Andrew and John, the author of this book, becoming Jesus's first disciple. We also discuss Simon becoming a disciple of Jesus and Jesus changing his name to Cephas or Peter. And then finally, we talked about Philip and Nathaniel becoming disciples of Jesus. Again, if you missed last week's episode or any episode, you can find them at our website at www.rym as in Mary, m as in Mary.cc. Again, that's www.rymm.cc. Today, we're going to look or start chapter 2 of John, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 11, which covers the wedding feast where Jesus turned water into wine again, which would be his first miracle, first of seven miracles in this year, and proving to his disciples and those around him that he indeed was the true Messiah or the Son of God. Because as you can imagine, there have been plenty of people that probably came forth and claimed to be the Messiah or the Son of God. But none of those people would perform the miracles and the signs that we're going to see Jesus performing because he was able to perform them because he indeed he was the Messiah and the Son of God. So what we're going to do, we're going to read through the verses and come back, talk about them individually. So if you would turn with me to the book of John the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Three days later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at a wedding feast in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited and were there. Verse number 3. When the wine was all gone, Mary said to Jesus, they don't have any more wine. Verse 4. Jesus replied, mother, my time has yet come. And let me stop right there. I'm reading from the 
contemporary English version. So again, as I've stated many times, depending on which versions you are, your words may be different from the words I'm reading. You may see instead of mother, you may see the word woman, which we'll talk about later. But picking up in verse four, Jesus replied, mother, in my version, it says, mother, my time hasn't yet come. You must not tell me what to do. Verse five, Mary then said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Verse six, at the feast, there were six stone water jars that were used by the people for washing themselves in the way that their religion said they must. Each jar held about 20 or 30 gallons. Verse seven, Jesus told the servants to fill them to the top with water. Then after the jars had been filled, he said, now take some water and give it to the, the man in charge of the feast. The servants did as Jesus told them, verse nine, and the man in charge drank some of the water that had now turned into wine. He did not know where the wine had come from, but the servants did. He called the bridegroom over and said, the best wine is always served first. Then after the guests have had plenty, the other wine is served. But you have kept the best until last. Verse 11. This was Jesus' first miracle, and he did it in the village of Cana in Galilee. There Jesus showed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. And we're going to read verse 12. After this, he went with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples to the town of Capernaia, where they stayed for a few days. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come to you thanking you as our God. We praise and worship you for this time that we have to study your word. Father, as always, we ask you to open our hearts, open our minds, open our ears and our eyes to better receive your word, O oh Lord. And not only to receive it, but to understand it and to apply it. We ask that you bless this session, O oh Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. We have a lot to unpack here. I once heard that God's word is constantly pregnant with revelation of who he is. And we see that in this particular passage of verses that we're going to discuss today. So let's get right into it. Again, we're in the book of John chapter two, and we're going to look at verses one through three first. Three days later, Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at a wedding feast in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited and were there. When the wine was all gone, Mary said to Jesus, they don't have any more wine. A wedding is a time of great celebration and joy. So it's no coincidence just that Jesus started his public ministry at a wedding by performing a miracle because Jesus starting his or his ministry of forgiveness to sinful man should have been a great time of joy and celebration. It is also no coincidence that Jesus starts his public ministry at the wedding because God's word tells us that the church is Jesus's bride and he is the bridegroom. To help us understand what's going on in this passage, we need to put the wedding in context from Middle Eastern perspective, not from an American perspective. But this happened uh, where the Jews lived in Jerusalem or around that area in the Middle East. And like with all cultures, they have certain customs that they do that that culture understands because they live it and they lived it and grew up with it. So when John, who was Jewish, 
was writing this letter to other Jews, they understood the context of this marriage and what was going on. And we need to understand it in order to put these passages into context. In those days, marriages were typically arranged. And when the two families settled on the details of the marriage, I give my son uh, for your daughter, it became like a contract. And the bride's family would pay to the husband or the husband family something for that bride in the form of I give you 10 goats, but something was exchanged for the bride. And then there was a multi-day feast that usually lasted a week where the friends and relatives of the two families would come to celebrate the marriage. And at that feast, they would drink wine the entire time. And usually the best wine was served on the first day or so. That's when people taste buds were fresh and they could really tell and appreciate that it was good wine. But as the days passed, because again, this is a like a week activity, what's called the less less than best or in one translation said the cheap wine is usually served and usually it was wine that was diluted with water to make it stretch over the remaining days of the feast so they can have enough. And also because they had drunk so much in the earlier days, those taste buds weren't as, as keen as they were when they first started the, the wedding feast. We also have to understand when Mary comes to Jesus and says that the wine has run out. There's significance to that because during those times when the hosting party would host the marriage, it was very important for them to have enough that they would throw these lavish feasts where they drank wine and had good food. And it was very important to have enough the entire week. And if you didn't, you it was a disgrace. The host family was shamed. The married couple was shamed. Not only were they shamed for the rest of their days, but their children and their children were shamed. So it was a big deal if the hosting party ran out of food or wine. So put that in the context when Mary comes to Jesus and says they are about to run out of wine. Mary, Jesus, and everyone there understood if that happened, it was going to be a crisis. Because again, during that time, it was very important to be able to have enough to last the entire week. And in certain circumstances, if you didn't, that would be grounds for a lawsuit. If you attended someone else's wedding and they had enough, and then when they came to your children's wedding, if you didn't, that was ground for a lawsuit. So again, it's very serious. This question of running out of wine was very serious when Mary approached Jesus about it. Another aspect that we need to look at when thinking about why Jesus' public ministry was start here in this wine, turning water into wine, you look back in the Old Testament, wine was associated with joy. When you look in the Old Testament of Judges, the book of Judges, chapter 9, verse 13, Psalms, chapter 104, verse 15, and Isaiah 55, verse 1, you can see where wine is associated with joy. So running out of wine was a tantamount to running out of joy. And so now that we have the wedding in context, let's go back to the word. We left off in verse 
three and but I'm going to read verse three again and I'm going to read to put it in context to keep it flowing. I'm going to read verses three through five together and then we'll talk about it. Verse three, when the wine was all gone, Mary said to Jesus, they don't have any more wine. Verse four, Jesus replied, mother, my time hasn't yet come and you must not tell me what to do. Verse five, Mary then said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And again, I'm reading from the contemporary English version and your version may have some different wording where it's a woman. And if it does, in my particular version, it has mother. Woman during that time was not a derogatory term. So Jesus was not disrespecting his mother when he said woman. During that time and in that culture saying woman was akin to uh, Madam during that time. So Jesus was not disrespecting his mother. In reference to my time has not come, there's some debate about what that exactly mean as far as his time to start performing miracles, his time to be glorified. And I don't want to get into the weeds of that because I want to spend the remaining time we have getting into the other passages. But what we need to understand is that he didn't say no, because as we know, and we, as we will read that Jesus was going to address the problem. Because Mary then goes on to tell the servants, do whatever Jesus tell you to do. And before we get into the remaining verses, let's talk about, I guess, the controversial issue of whether or not Jesus made and drank wine. And this verse in the Bible as a whole tells us that he did. And I'm not encouraging anyone to drink but the word is clear from this passages and then putting the whole context of when the Jews used the word wine, they meant fermented wine. They were not talking about grape juice. The word wine is used over 140 times throughout the entire Bible. And when you look at how it was used and the context in which it was used, it's clear they were talking about an alcoholic beverage and not grape juice. Now, the Bible clearly does state don't get drunk, but it does not say that it's a sin to drink wine. Jesus drank wine as all Jews did during the Passover. In these particular passages that we're looking here today, they are talking about an alcoholic beverage and not grape juice. But I wanted to address that controversial aspect of it, even in this society where we may be facing alcoholism and other things, doesn't change the fact of God's word saying what it says. Now, that being said, again, the Bible clearly states, do not get drunk. And if you know you have an issue with drunkenness, you, you may want to consider whether or not you should drink wine. Also, the Bible says, don't betray your conscience. If so, that is sin. So in other words, if you believe something to be sin and the Bible doesn't clearly addresses whether or not it's a sin and you do it anyway, then it's a sin. So if you believe that is a sin for you to drink wine in order not to portray your conscience and sin, well, then you should not drink wine. But now let's go back to verse number five. Mary then said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. In other words, Mary tells the servants to listen to Jesus' instructions, just like we should do. Whatever Jesus or God tells us to do, we should do it. So she could have not preached a better sermon than 
do what Jesus tell you to do. Since Jesus had never performed a miracle before, according to John 10, 11, we can't be sure exactly what Mary expected when she told the servants to do whatever Jesus said do. We have no hint from this account that Jesus told Mary, well, I'm going to turn this, this water into wine. But even without these prior miracles, Mary had come to trust in Jesus that he could resolve problems. And just like she had faith in Jesus to resolve problems, we must put our faith in Jesus to do the same in our lives. So we see an example of that in, in this particular passage. And when she told Jesus of the problem of the wedding party running out of wine, she didn't come to Jesus with a detailed answer to what he should do. Mary was content on trusting in Jesus, even though she didn't know all the details. So she had trust in Jesus, even though she didn't know all he, what he was going to do, but she had trust. And just like Mary, we should also, as believers today, must learn and trust in God's plan, even when he hadn't revealed all the details to us, to know that he is faithful and that he's God and he's more than able to resolve our concerns. And that's what we see Mary demonstrating here. Moving on to verse six. Again, we're in John chapter two in the New Testament. We're going to read verse six. And again, I'm reading from the contemporary English version, which says, at the feast, there were six stone water jars that were used by the people for washing themselves in the way that their religion said they must. Each jar held about 20 or 30 gallons. These jars were used for ritual purification. Uh, ritual purification was a way of life for the Jewish people. Several years, the Pharisees, remember we talked about the Pharisees, the upper religious class, had created a detailed set of rules regarding what constituted ritual purity and ritual impurity. Even though God in his commands didn't address a lot of those ritual purities that they came up with, but just man being man, God's word is not enough. We had to add on to it. And so over the centuries, they had added on to these various rituals that the Jews had to do in order to be cleaned or purified before certain festivals or certain activities, in particular when it comes to uh, the marriage feast that these ritual purification jars that this verse talks about talk about would be placed near the entrance uh, to the room where they would be celebrating the, the wedding. And as guests arrive, each would be ritually purified before eating by having a set amount of water taken from the jars and poured on the guests' hands. And that would make them clean to better participate in the, in the festivities. And we're told in verse 6 that there were six water jars, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water, which is a lot. And then we go on to verse number or verses seven through 10 in John chapter two, again, reading from reading from the contemporary English version. Jesus told the servants to fill them to the top with water. Then after the jars had been filled, he said, take some water and give it to the man in charge of the feast. The servants did as Jesus told them and the man in charge drank some of the water that had now turned into wine. He did not know where the wine had come from. But the servants did. He called the bridegroom over and said, the best wine is always served first. Then after the guests have had plenty, the other wine is served. But you have kept the best until last. Jesus turning the water into wine was symbolic of something. It meant something. He just wasn't turning the water into wine uh, without a purpose. The water in those purification jars was uh, meant to achieve ritual purification over and over again, similar to when we talked about them sacrificing the animals in order to uh, cleanse the sin 
over and over again. So when Jesus turned that water into wine, and in the Bible, wine is symbolic of blood, him turning the water into wine is symbolic of his blood, signifying that the shedding of his blood when he goes to the cross for our sins will result in total and complete purity once and forever for those who believe and confess him as Lord and Savior. In other words, once a believer has accepted that Jesus died and his precious and holy and righteous and godly blood was spilled for our sins, then that person is purified in the eyes of God once and forever. And there's no need to continue to do the ritual cleanings, the sacrificing for the animals, because Jesus did and paid it all on the cross. And studying for this program today and doing my research, I came across an article that talks about how much wine that was actually produced based upon those six jars holding 20 to 30 gallons of water. And then Jesus telling them, you in your version, it may say, fill it to the brim. And what I read, it says, fill it to the top. So all these six jars holding between 20 and 30 gallons of water that eventually are going to be turned into wine. I saw in an article where someone did a calculation of how much wine that would be. Let's say on average, it was 150 gallons between the six jars. And our average wine bottle contains 750 milliliters or can contain 750 milliliters of wine. And so if you do 750 meters of wine over 150 gallons, that's 800 bottles of not just wine, but fine wine that Jesus turned from water into wine. And one may say, why so much wine? 800, think about that, 800 bottles a fine wine, not just wine, but fine wine. And the answer to the question of why so much fine wine, because it's symbolic of God's grace and his forgiveness can cover every and all sin. So matter, no matter what you've done, no matter what we've done, God's blood is more than enough to cover it, to cleanse it, excuse me, not to cover it, but to cleanse it and to offer you grace and abundance. So it makes no difference what we have done in our lives. God, one, already knows or knew everything that we would do even before we ever did it. And despite that, he still sent his son to die on the cross to cleanse and forgive our sins. If we accept his son, Jesus, as our Lord and Savior and accept that free gift that he did it, then it will be forgiven and we have grace upon grace upon grace. So that's why it's symbolic of how abundant his forgiveness and grace is for his fallen creature, man, us. Oh, what a great God we serve. Then finally, in chapter two of John in the New Testament, verses 11 through 12, and I'm going to read this from the New International Version or the NIV Version. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Finally, well, the last verse after this, he went with his mother, his brothers, his disciples to the town of Capernaum, where they stayed for a few days. John, the, the writer of this book described Jesus' miracles as signs. This is important because a sign always sends a message. 
And the message that Jesus is sending here, or we'll see not only here, but all his miracles and signs, he is sending a sign to prove that he is the son of God, that he is the true Messiah. As I said before, as you can imagine, the Jews had been promised a Messiah would come on the scene. And many people, I'm sure, appeared saying that they were the son of God, they were Messiah, as they do today. But, and God knew this, and he sent a sign or allowed his son to do these signs to show to them and prove to them that Jesus indeed, indeed is his son by turning water into wine, by healing the sick, by raising the dead, by walking on water. None of those other people who came proclaiming to be the Messiah were able to do that, and nor would they be because they were not the son of God, but Jesus is. And finally, in verse 11, they said that the disciples, after the miracle, that his disciples believed in him. Put it in context, Jesus had just started his public ministry. And we're not told how many disciples at this time, but we know he had at least a few. Based upon them talking with Jesus, they had come to the conclusion that he was the Messiah. But once they saw this miracle of turning water, 800 bottles of water into wine, they believed in him because they had probably never, not probably, had never experienced in their life and no one else had experienced in their life, someone turning water into wine, let alone turning water into 800 bottles of fine wine. And based upon that miracle, disciples would believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And not only that, when he go on to make other public miracles, because you got to remember, based upon this passage we just read, the only people that knew that Jesus had turned the water into wine was Mary and the servants and the disciples. There was no public broadcast that Jesus pronounced or announced that he did that. Because remember, the guy over the wedding pulled a groomman aside and said, man, usually you save the best wine or do the best wine in the beginning and use the cheap stuff at the end. And here you are with the best wine at the end because it was from Jesus. He didn't know. But Jesus would go on to do, as we know, many public miracles and signs that would leave many people to believe in him as the son of God, the one, the Messiah. Well, that's our program for today. We will pick up on next week where we left off in chapter two of the book of John in the New Testament. Let's pray. Father God, in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you that you are our God. We thank you that you sent your son, that his precious, holy, righteous and godly blood would be spilled for our sins. We thank you that you will open up our eyes, our ears, our hearts to receive and understand your word and apply it in our lives and lead to salvation where salvation is needed, O oh Lord. Lord, I pray that anything I said is not of you, that it be cast into the sea of forgiveness, that your people may not be harmed. Lord, we thank you for blessing the program and bless everyone who is listening, that your word would not return to you void. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen and amen. That's our time for today's program. If the Lord says the same, we will pick up on next week where we left off. We pray that this Bible study has blessed you. If you have a prayer request, you can email it to us at renewyourmind, the letter M, 
at gmail.com. That's R-E-N-E-W-Y-O-U-R-M-I-N-D as in David, M as in Mary at gmail.com. If you would like a free copy of this recording, you can email your request to renew your mind, the letter M at gmail.com. That's R-E-N-E-W-Y-O-U-R-M-I-N-D as in David, M as in Mary at gmail.com. We also encourage you to return next week at this time to continue the journey of renewing our minds by the word of God. We encourage you to tell others about the program and share the email and link to get the program if they missed it. Jesus says in Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. By telling others about the program, you are doing your part to spread the gospel into all the world about our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Until next time, this has been Renewing Your Mind with the Word of God.